All right. Before we read God's word together, let's pray for the Spirit's illumining power. God, our Father, we pray now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon the congregation. Father, you promised to your disciples your Holy Spirit that was poured out of Pentecost, that he would bring to their mind all the things that they knew to be true. And so God would that same inspirer of scripture now illumine our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Would he remind us of the gospel afresh this morning? Would you bless both the preaching and the hearing of the word? We pray this for the sake of our lovely savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse one, this is God's holy and errant and life-giving word. Hear now church as our Lord speaks. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went away? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God abides forever. Of all the great trash talkers in professional sports. I think the greatest of all time, hands down, was the late, great Muhammad Ali. Uh, Ali had a way of getting into his opponent's head before he ever stepped into the ring with his fists. They called him the Louisville Lip. Uh, he would refer to himself in the most elevated, grandiose terms possible so as to intimidate his opponent, to make him feel small by way of comparison. Nowhere is this tactic better seen than in a poem he penned at age 21. And here are the first two stanzas. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. This brash young boxer is something to see and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. Now here's where it gets good. This kid fights great, He's got speed and endurance, but if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. The kid's got a left, the kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. 
And as you lie on the floor while the ref counts to 10, you pray that you won't have to fight me ever again. And to close out that poem, Ali ends with those four famous words that we all know him for, I am what? The greatest. I am the greatest. This is the Muhammad Ali with which we're all familiar. The braggadocious boxer who could, what was that children, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. We all know Muhammad Ali. However, by his own admission, Ali was a very different man outside of the ring than he was when he was inside. This lesser known quote by Muhammad Ali reveals why he talked so much smack, why he assumed this larger than life persona. Ali said, at home, I'm a nice guy, but I don't want the world to know. Humble people I found don't get very far. Humble people don't get very far. That's why he needed to declare that he was the greatest. Because in his experience, he realized that humble people, the nice guys, always finish last. But as we turn the page to Matthew 18 and we hear our Lord Jesus respond to that question of all questions, Jesus, tell us who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The exact opposite is true. It's only the humble people that get far. It's only the humble, the lowly, the contrite in heart, like Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, that enter into heaven. This is Jesus' way. He teaches by way of contrast. He takes what the world defines as greatness, completely flips it upside down, and shows us what true and real greatness is like. It's being meek, poor in spirit. And if you want to be great in the eyes of God, you need to be a little one, like a small child. That is true greatness. That's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 18. And these words, and we all know this, are just as needful today as they were in the disciples' day. Because if we're all being honest, no matter how long we've been Christians, we all struggle with this insatiable desire to be great. Children, those of you like me who play sports, don't you want to be the best on your team? Don't you want to be the one that has the medal put around his or her neck? Don't you want to hoist the trophy at the end of the match? Parents, don't we want to have the nicest house? Don't we want to have successful careers? Don't we want people to turn and say, that's so-and-so. He's influential. He's, he's, he's persuasive. She is a go-getter. She is successful. We all want greatness. And the world tells us how to find it. And yet we come up empty every time, don't we? Oh, so we need to go back, really, to what true greatness is. We need to turn, as Jesus says, we need to repent of buying into these definitions of worldly greatness and turn to where true greatness can be found, and that's to Jesus himself. And so I want us to learn from verses 1 through 14 of the text before us is this simple truth, that though the little children of the kingdom may be despised by the world, they are highly valued. They are great in the eyes of their heavenly father. That though the little children of the kingdom may be despised by the world, they are great. They are highly valued in the eyes of their heavenly father. We're going to break down the text into two portions. We're going to talk about the great in the kingdom, who they are. So first point, will identify who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The identity of the greatest. And then Jesus tells us how we're to treat them. 
the treatment of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the two points, the identity of the greatness and the treatment of the greatest. Now, contextually, this is the uh, fourth of Jesus' five discourses. If you were to divide Matthew up, it would divide nice and neatly into five portions, five discourses. In the first discourse, which you hear echoes of in our text, that's from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And then in chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples what life on mission is going to look like, what it's going to cost them to be a disciple. He says that persecution will come, but don't fear. And know that whatever you expend in for the sake of my name in this life, you will receive a reward. In chapter 13, Jesus told us about the character of the kingdom, that it's uh, that's the parable section where we talk about what the kingdom is like its composition, its growth, and its singular preciousness. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. You'd be wise to sell everything else that you have to obtain this kingdom. And today, in this discourse, Jesus is telling us what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are like, what you and I are like. And according to Jesus, we're all like little children, which leads us into the first point, the identity of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the circumstances that prompted this question, we have to look back in chapter uh, 16 because you, you think about it, or in chapter 17, in that same hour, at that time, the Greek literally reads in that same hour. So there is a logical connection between what happens to end chapter 17 and what we find in uh, chapter 18. And this is where Jesus tells his disciples that he is the son of God and has no need to pay the temple tax. And that by extension, that his disciples who are adopted by God, that nor do they have to pay the temple tax, that they are sons of the king. Jesus is the son of God by nature as the second person of the Trinity, but his disciples are the sons of God by adoption. And then you can understand why the disciples ask this question. They say, okay, if we're the sons of God, then who's the greatest of the sons of God? Who's going to be the one that stands to inherit the greatest blessing? Who's going to be the greatest among the disciples? And as I said, in chapter 16, at this point in Matthew's gospel, we might think it's going to be Peter. Peter, at Caesarea Philippi, he gave the answer of all answers. When Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the first time that the suffering servant and that the Messiah and, and the son of God came into one where where that understanding, Peter hit on it. And we say, bravo, Peter, well done. Maybe Peter's going to be the greatest, but maybe it'll be James and John. Because in chapter 17, after all, they were up there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter. So will it be one of the three from the inner circle? Will it be Peter himself? And so the circumstances that prompt this question, we want to know who's going to be the greatest. Jesus talks about a kingdom of heaven, doesn't he? And so when you look at the kingdoms of the earth, isn't there a hierarchy? Isn't there a pecking order? Aren't there some people in the earthly kingdoms that are greater than other people? So Jesus, tell us about this chain of greatness. Who's going to be the greatest among us? These are the circumstances that prompted the question. But underlying these external circumstances is the internal attitude of the disciples' hearts. What was it inside of them that caused them to ask the question, Fundamentally, it was the sin of pride. It was the sin of pride. Pride is the jealousy for first place. 
It's wanting to be first in, in, in the position of importance. And it's this sin of pride that is at the root. It's at the heart of so many conflicts that we find throughout the pages of scripture. You can remember it, um, really the first incident uh, with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Cain was displeased with God because Abel was in first place. God heeded. He loved Abel's sacrifice, but did not love Cain's. And so Cain, in his anger, with his wounded pride, he goes and he wounds and slays his brother in the field. Then you can fast forward. What about Jacob, the heel grabber? What did he want? Uh, he wanted his brother's birthright. He wanted first importance. He wanted the place of favor. It was pride. And then even further in the book of Genesis, you think of jo Joseph. What was it that landed him in prison? What was it that caused him to be sold into slavery? It was the jealousy of his brothers because they knew that he had first place in his father's heart. It's the sin of pride. But you think, you know, these are the disciples that we're talking about. They've been with Jesus on mission for two years. So certainly they should be beyond this struggle, this internal wrestling match with pride, right? But... I think uh, that's just a reminder that no matter how long we have known Jesus, we too struggle with wanting to be in first place. We too struggle. We have our heads on a swivel. And often when you look at the church, our problems rise when some, everybody's grappling for first place on the podium. So this preoccupation with place, position, power, it's a recurring temptation of the life of the disciples. And, and we in the church of Christ need to be on guard. We need to be willing to take the back seat, to do the things that maybe won't get us out of boys, maybe won't uh, garner the attention or the praise of people around us, but to serve in the secret place where God sees, where God knows. So the disciples ask this question, who's the greatest with earthly greatest on their minds? And they expect Jesus to give them an earthly answer but jesus as he so often does he turns everything upside down and he calls to him a child he calls to him a child which gives us the answer to their question verse two and calling to him a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly i say to you unless you turn and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn um that verb there really is the idea of, of turn, unless you do a 180. You turn away from buying into how the earth defines greatness, and you buy into what I say greatness is. You can't enter the kingdom of God. We're going to see a little bit later that Jesus even says, um, it is harder for a rich person to fit through the uh, to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And, and rich people in that day and age, they're great. They're great people. You see how Jesus is, is, is weaving all this together. Now, the question becomes, what about children are we to emulate? Or how are we to be like little children? Biblical commentators, we, we, we go back and forth about this. Uh, what is it in children that we're called to emulate by Jesus here? Is it their childlike dependence, simple faith, their disinterest in worldly acclaim, their humility, or, or is it all of the above? This is the approach that most take. They try to identify a desirable quality that we find in children and say that Jesus is telling us emulate this quality. However, rather than trying to guess what about children Jesus has in mind, the 
clearer interpretation, or, or I'd say the cleaner interpretation would go this way. Jesus says you must become like little children in terms of their low status, in terms of their low societal status. R.T. France, who maintains this view, he writes, a child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, and not to be looked up to. The idea of low status also makes good sense as it's the exact opposite of earthly greatness. Jesus does this elsewhere. He says that those who are going to be first, what well, they need to be? Last. What's the opposite of being great? Is it, is it childlike faith? Is it dependency? No. Um, the opposite of great is to be little. It's to be less and lesser. And, and, and this makes a great uh, deal of sense. You know, even in our modern context, though we value children a great deal more than the contemporary Jewish society back then may have, where they were viewed purely as property. Um, we do this with kids. You know, for those of you that are in the professional world, how many three-year-olds did you go out of your way to network with or rub shoulders with when you were looking for a promotion at your workplace? None, right? Children don't help us climb ladders. Children are a delight but they're not going to fuel your upward mobility. In fact, in, in some ways that, you know, children can be, they can stifle that, right? That, that's what the world tells us. So in the ways of the world, children are not all that significant. That's what Jesus is, is responding to. They don't get you where you want to go. And so Jesus says, if you want to be first, you need to be willing to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be willing to be of no repute of no reputation. You have to be willing, uh, what did John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must decrease. That's the way to heavenly greatness, which brings us now to our second point. So, so who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the least in the eyes of the world. It's the people of no reputation, the people that the world might look down their nose at, but Jesus says, you need to be like these little children. Now, how are we to treat these least in the kingdom of heaven? What are we to do? Well, we ought to treat them, as verse 5 says, with tremendous care. We ought to receive them. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, that language there of in my name, that's by virtue of their union with Christ. We receive one of these little ones. Um, Jesus talks about this later on in the Gospel of Matthew. He says um, he commends those, those men and women at the judgment day who came and, and served and did, weren't even aware that they did it because Jesus had said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. And they said, Lord, when did we do that? It was when you served the least of these. When you served the least of these. When you welcomed these little ones in my name. Now, James, in, in his epistle, he warns us against the sin of partiality because it's just human nature for us to instantly gravitate to the powerful, to the people that we think uh, can get us where we want to go, to the to the man with the purple robe and the gold rings like James talks about, and to tell those that are least in the eyes of the world to tell them to go off in the corner. But 
Jesus says, no, you need to receive them. Receive them with warmth as you would receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive them in his name. But then in verses 6 and 7, he tells us how we're not to treat them, what we are not to do. He says, receive, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for the temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, verses six and seven, with that language there, it's necessary that temptations come. What Jesus is, he's, he's not encouraging sin or saying that, um, you know, it's a good thing that these temptations come. Rather, he's saying in a fallen world that's been broken by the fall, this is just the, the sad but necessary consequence of living in a fallen world. Temptations are going to come. There's going to be fiery trials. But Jesus says, woe to the one through whom or by whom they come. And he describes the saddest state of that one who tempts one of these little ones to sin. He says that it would be better for this man to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, causing one of these little ones to stumble. You know, a contemporary example of, of this, uh, for those of you uh, like me, I, I, I uh, was a Baptist before becoming Presbyterian, and my first thing inroads into Reformed theology was through John Piper. John Piper is a godly man. Uh, he is a gifted preacher, expositor of God's word. But his son, Abraham Piper, of late, he's apostatized. And he's been vocal about it. Uh, he's taken to TikTok, and he has over a million followers. And he's actively leading God's people astray and telling them that Christianity is, after all, just a, it's a, it's a myth. It's, it's an antiquated ethical system. And you would be wise to listen to Abraham Piper. He's the son of John Piper, after all. And if he sees through all the smoke, the mirrors, then you should too. Well, Jesus says of such men, those who would lead his little ones astray, his chosen people, he says it would be preferable for that person to have a great 4,000-pound millstone thrown around their neck and tossed into the bottom of the sea. Friends, this is no slap on the wrist. Tying to trap and lead God's people off the narrow path, is, it's not a mere infraction. Now, why does Jesus tell us this? For this reason. The severity of the consequences are high because the value that God assigns to each and every one of his little children is also very high. Right? The punishment fits the crime because God loves his little ones. He sets such a high value on them that the, that the severity of the punishments, it only matches. It's only appropriate. God loves his children. And then we turn to verse 8, further describing for us what we ought not to do, how we ought not to treat the greatest in the kingdom of God, the little ones of the world. Jesus says, if your hand causes if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. You can hear Jesus channeling his first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, talking about temptations to sin. You throw it away. You make like Joseph. You flee. You get out of there. You have nothing to do with those temptations that would cause you to sin, but also 
those sins that would scandalize or become a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You think of James 3.1, where James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? We're going to be judged strictly, not only for what we teach, but also our conduct, because people follow. As under shepherds in service to the great shepherd, we're responsible for how we live. And so for those who are elders in the church or those who are deacons, those who have taken vows to uh, maintain God's word, both in profession and in their deeds, we need to be very careful that we are leading by example and that we are not the cause of leading someone else astray. God forbid it. Whatever sin it is that we may be struggling with, Jesus says not only that we're to cut it off, we're to throw it away. We're to put distance between us and our sin. And then in verse 10, Jesus tells us that we mustn't, and, and, and this is the clincher, I think, how ought we, uh, what we ought not to do. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you don't despise them. Now, why do we despise little ones? Or what is it about the little ones that would cause, like, when we look at small children, we think they're adorable, right? So that there feels a bit of a disconnect, but what is it about Christianity or, or God's people, perhaps, that we could say makes us easy to despise? Well, if you look at the history of the church, Christians were seldom the movers and shakers of society. We were a marginalized people. Uh, we were a people who, in the eyes of the world, we believed in a foolish gospel. You remember Paul. He says the gospel that we preach to the Jew and to the Greek, it's, it's foolishness. The Jews want their signs. The Greeks want wisdom. But we preach Jesus Christ. The foolishness of the cross is central to our message. And so, yes, you, you mean to tell me that a dead Savior is going to bring you life? That victory is through the defeat of the cross? Right? The, the, the world, this is entirely foreign. The world's embarrassed by the simplicity of the Christian message. They want wisdom. They want something more sophisticated, more with the times. But friends, Christianity doesn't need to get with the times because the problems are all the same. It's our sin. Man is the problem. And yet the gospel and the gospel alone delivers for us the antidote to this issue. So yeah, the world can say that Christianity uh, attracts the foolish, the simple-minded, the uneducated, the unimpressive, the unsophisticated. But be that as it may, to us, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the cross of Christ in which we place our hope. So what must happen in order for us, as verse 5 says, to receive these little ones? If we know the temptations, we know why it's easy to despise or why it's easy to look down upon the people of God, even though we're among the people of God, because let's confess, is it easy being in the church? It's difficult. We have lots of different personalities. And, and let's be honest, if the gospel didn't unite us, we probably wouldn't be together, would we? In terms of the world and say, oh, you guys have nothing in common. And yet when we have Christ as our savior, we have everything in common. We have the most important thing in common. So, so how in the church do we guard against, because remember, Jesus is talking to the disciples here. How do we guard against this, these hard feelings against brothers and sisters of Christ? How do we keep from falling prey to despising others? I think the first is that we need to redefine greatness once again. And from this perspective, sinfully, 
we measure a person's worth based on what they can do for us. When in reality, we should measure a person's worth but what, by what Christ has done for them. Sinfully, we measure the worth of people based on what they can do for us, when in reality, we should measure their worth but by, by what Christ has done for them. The next time that we're tempted to be harsh or critical or um, uh, you know, get ticky-tacky with a brother or sister in Christ, just remember that they've been bought with the blood of the lamb just as you were. That God's love, that brother or sister, from the, before the foundations of the world. That that little one, that little one is a living temple in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. That that little one is just as justified, just as loved by God the Father as you are. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. But we remember not only that, that God loves them, but that we are little ones too that we've been purchased by God's grace, that we haven't earned it, we haven't merited it, that they're a mess and so are we. And so that's where we need to remember we are God's little ones too. And that's when we can be kind and gentle towards our fellow little ones. We remember that Christ has died for them as well. All God's children are little children. All of God's children our little children. This is a picture of every single one of us by God's grace for the entirety of our Christian experience. Now, why are we to treat people this way? Besides what I've just said, there are two, as we round out, two rationales for why we are to treat the little ones, God's little ones, in a caring way. The first rationale is provided for us in verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, admittedly, this, this seems strange. How do verses one through five and, and seven through 14, do they really comprise a whole? When I originally preached this, I thought of preaching this in three different sermons. But really, you see what Matthew, what Jesus is doing is he, he's building an argument. He's building a rationale for why we're to treat the little ones of God in such a caring manner. And he says, look, for I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. Picture with me for a second, a person walking past you on the street. Um, they're in plain clothes and um, you pay them absolutely no mind. For you, you've never seen this person before. They're wearing uh, you know, cargo shorts, a tank top, flip flops, and then they're just walking down the street. You just think, okay. But picture that same person with secret service details swarming around them, all the men in the black coats with the earpieces and the sunglasses, even though that person's dressed in the same exact manner, you would say, wow, that must be an important person, right? That's what God is saying about his children. He's saying that even though my little ones might not look like much, they have an angelic host as their security detail. That my father in heaven so loves them that he has sent a legion of angels to do his bidding and to preserve his church. You think of God's ministry through angels. And in Genesis, it was the angels that brought Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before its destruction. The book of Exodus, the angels were God's ministers of retributive justice on the Egyptians for the punishments and for the, the travesties that they inflicted on his people. Jesus isn't telling us that every one of us has like a, a guardian angel on his or her shoulders, but rather that 
God gives his angels work to do to protect his people. So if the security detail of these little ones is great, then God must think that we're pretty great too. And, and this is interesting as well. Um, if the security detail of these little ones is so great, I think this is where he's saying, um, they always see the face of my father in heaven, verse 10. I think this is why he goes here. He says, if their security detail is so great that they have seen the face of my father in heaven, then how much greater are those whom they guard? God could provide no greater protection for his little ones. And so you are to treat them with honor, respect, and love. And the second rationale, the second rationale for why we are to treat the little ones in a loving manner, because God pursues every one of his little ones when they go astray. Jesus is prepping us for what he's going to say in John chapter 10 with the parable of where he calls himself the good shepherd. In Jesus' eyes, the loss of even one sheep is too many. This is one of the most familiar motifs throughout scripture. It's one of the most comforting, in fact. You think of everyone's favorite psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for, for his name's sake. Jesus is our shepherd. He takes interest in his sheep's health every day. He provides for us our daily bread, doesn't he? So you, when you consider the fact that Jesus calls us his sheep and that he knows us by name, but also as verses 12 through 13 say that he goes out and he finds us. When we're most difficult, when we're sinful, when we run from him, when we kick, when we bite, that Jesus, if Jesus runs after us, then we're to run after our brothers and sisters as well. Then we are, if the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep, then certainly we need to give the sheep our love. Now, there are lies that Satan tries to convince us of when we read texts like this. He tries to tell us, well, that's great that Jesus pursues every one of those sheep, but, you know, certainly not you. You've been wandering for far too long. For goodness sake, you've been in the church for all these years and you're still struggling with the same sins that you struggle with. If, if people really knew who you were, if God really knew who you were, then he would give up the pursuit of you altogether. But friends, as Psalm 139 says, he knows you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. He knit you in your mother's womb. He knows you in and out. He knows the thoughts in your head before you even think them. And yet his promises are still true. He still calls out and calls you his child. He's adopted you, and he can never unadopt you. If God knows all the trivial things about you, like the hairs on your head, if he knows the number of breaths that will come from your chest, then certainly don't you think that he's going to take care of everything else in your life? That you can out -sin his grace? By no means. But then you might say, too, that I've wandered for too long, restoration is impossible. It'll take a long time for me to get back because it's a long, taken me a long time to get here. I've had somebody in my congregation say that to me, pastor, I dug myself this ditch over a long period of time. And it's going to take me a long time to get out. Favorite place to go is the cross because Jesus turns and he sees that thief on the cross who had lived as far as we know 
up until his final moments, a life of thievery. And did it take him long to hear Christ's pardoning voice? No. And that's the good news of the gospel, friends, that if you would turn to Jesus Christ today, no matter how long you've been living in sin, no matter how long you have grieved God's Holy Spirit, spurned his grace, the good news is, is that if you turn to him, he'll never let you go. He pursues you with an everlasting love. So today, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Friends, that's the same promise that is there for you. Today, if you come to Christ, he will restore you. He will forgive your sin. So linger no longer. What's that hymn? If you tarry till you're better, you will never come. Come to Christ. He's the great physician, and it's only through him that we're made better. So what we've seen in these verses this morning is that though the little children of the kingdom may be despised by the world, they are highly valued by their father in heaven. Though the little ones, God's people, the people that the world might, they might look down their nose at us, friends. They might say that we're unsophisticated, uneducated, that we, that we believe in this simple gospel. But be that as it may, the good news is, is that you and I are loved with an everlasting love by our Father in heaven. And in that, we can rejoice. So what does it take to be great? That was the question that kicked all of this off. What does it take to be great? It turns from turning, it takes from turning what we believe greatness to be to what God says greatness truly is. It's having a broken and contrite heart. It's humbling ourselves, turning to Christ, confessing that we are no better off than a wandering sheep without his shepherd. It requires that we cry out for help and accept that there is one who is greater than us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had us read from Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, because you realize that's the picture. That's greatness. That the son of God took on flesh and suffered in our place. And that now as Philippians chapter two says that he who condescended, he now has a name that is above all names. And at that name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Exaltation comes through humiliation. Greatness comes through being the least. And that is nowhere seen better than the ministry of our Lord Jesus, the great son of God who came to be spurned by men for your sake and for mine. Though we may be lowly, though we may be unworthy, take heart, dear Christian. Your father in heaven loves you, protects you, and he sent Christ to die for you. And in that, we all say amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for being our Father, for pursuing us relentlessly. God, we pray that you would help us to heal our backslidings, that you would turn our hearts, that you would show us the vaporousness, the falsehood, God, the lies of earthly greatness and that you would turn our hearts to what you say is truly great. Turn them to the Lord Jesus. Father, we are a prideful people by nature. We want to be at the top of the podium. We want to be in first place, but would we like John the Baptist be willing to decrease so that Christ might increase? We thank you that Christ has not only redeemed us by his blood, but he has set for us the example that exaltation comes through humiliation. 
that greatness comes through being the least. Help us, Lord, to be willing to take that back seat, to be of no reputation if it would mean that Christ would be great. We thank you for your gospel, that it has saved us, is saving us, and will save us unto the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.